Let us, brothers and sisters, open the Holy Scriptures together. We read from the letter of Paul to the Colossians, and then from the letter to the Romans. Both in connection with our text in Genesis 1 about being made in the image of God. So Paul has something to say about that in Colossians, and he expands on the particulars in Romans 8. So Colossians chapter 1, page 1251 in the Pew Bible, 1251, beginning at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God." May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him." If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We turn now to the book of Romans, letter to the Romans, chapter 8. Page 1200. And we'll read the verses 1 through 17. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and, and I follow the footnote reading, and as a sin offering, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Please turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, continuing our series of sermons from that chapter. We've come as far as the sixth day of creation, and particularly the creation of mankind on day six. This morning we'll focus on what the Lord reveals in verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So far, our text. In response, we'll sing about the work of the Spirit 
helping us to be and become what we were created to be, the image of God. And we'll sing hymn 48, stanzas 3 and 4. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you know who you are? That may seem like a strange question, but there are many today who really don't know who they are. It's quite common for people to grow up doing the things their parents did before them, following a similar pattern of life, get an education, get a job, get married, have children, only to wake up one day wondering, what is it all about? For some, the questions come when they turn 40 or so, what the psychologists like to call a midlife crisis. The 40-year-old sees his or her life shaping up much as the generation before it, they look at life, uh, they start to see life as a big hamster wheel with no end or purpose, just birth, life, death, birth, life, death, so on and so forth. And, and seeing that can leave them shaken to the core with this question, what is my life really? Just another drop in the ocean, just another brick in the wall. Some are begging, please, please tell me who I am. And it's not just the 40-year-olds who have that crisis. It can happen to young people just as well, teenagers, young adults who observe life, and they start asking the why question, why am I here? Who am I in this humongous world, just little old me. Who am I? And Christians also can struggle with this. Sometimes children grow up and live the pattern of the Christian life just like mom and dad before them, but they haven't understood why they're living the Christian life. They have the outward shell of faith, but it doesn't have meaning for them. They're just going through the motions. They're doing what they've been taught to do until one day it hits them smack in the face. What am I really living for? Who am I? Why am I on this planet? These questions can affect everyone, from the man on the street to the person sitting in the pew to songs on the radio to philosophers in their ivory towers, the questions keep coming back, do you know who you are? And if you don't have an answer to that question and the surrounding questions, it can really rock your world and send you into a tailspin of doubt and despair. Well, thank God then that we do have an answer and answers to those questions. For right here in our text in Genesis 1, the Word of God tells us exactly who we are. We are the image of God. So I proclaim to you this Word of the Lord, you were created in the image of God. You, all of you, were created 
in the image of God. That brings two callings to mind in our two points of the sermon. We are to represent God in the world, and we are to reflect God to the world. Represent Him in the world and reflect Him to the world. Well, our text begins, verse 26, with these remarkable words, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Right away, just by the way God sets that up, we know something remarkable is going on, something extra special. For all the other acts of creation, we simply read, and that's earlier in the chapter, and God said, right? God said, let there be light. God said, let the waters teem with living creatures, or let the land produce living creatures. For everything else in creation, there is the the simple will of God and, and a command that comes down from Him. But for God's last work, there is a first, a very careful deliberation. Let us make man. Us. Who is the us? Well, that has to be God in the Godhead. Now, it's true the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't become clear until the New Testament, but as we saw recently from John chapter 1 and as we read in Colossians 1, Father, Son, and Spirit were fully involved in the work of creation, and here in that word us, we catch a glimpse of them, so to speak. They speak together amongst themselves, let us. Only when it comes to making man do they do this, do they pause and confer. And that underlines for us, beloved, that man is not made by chance. Mankind is not an add-on to the animal kingdom, a development from the apes, no, Mankind clearly stands apart from all the other creatures as a creation given special consideration by the Almighty God, let us. And then what's God going to do? Let us make man in our image. No animal has that. No other creature, not even the angels, are created in God's image, only man. What a tremendous contrast that is, isn't it, to the theory of evolution? The evolutionist believes without a shred of hard evidence that all living creatures, man included, come forth from or came forth from and evolved from that tiniest beginning of life in the ocean billions of years ago, a little tiny microscopic amoeba, they say. And that means that humans, to their way of reckoning, humans are, among other things, just one of the animals. We're just another beast, an evolved beast, but just a beast. Humans are not inherently different than the creatures. We're just further along the scale of evolution, they say. Deep down, we're all the same because we've got the same parent, that amoeba in the sea. And that belief about who you are as humans affects our ethics, affects the way people look at good and evil. 
Evolution operates on the principle of survival of the fittest. The strong survive, the weak naturally die off. The strong, they keep advancing, and usually they do it on the backs of the weak. That's how evolution works. That's the idea. They, the evolutionists, believe this is appropriate. This is fine. This is the way it should be. So, when it comes to how we treat humans, the ethics can go in that way very easily. It becomes okay to leave the poor and the helpless to their own devices. There's no need, really, to care for those who cannot care for themselves because they're among the weak of the species. Let them die off. Let the strong survive. Isn't that why? Think about this. Isn't that why aborting babies, specifically babies with a variety of ailments or handicaps, such as babies with Down syndrome, babies with cleft lips, or some other handicap, this is becoming a thing. It's becoming popular in the world. Certain countries have almost no births of Down syndrome children because by virtue or through uh, abortion, they've eliminated that. Can you fathom what's, what's going on there? That's the ethics of evolutionary thinking. And in Canada, it's not that far different. They call it assisted dying when they encourage the killing of the frail and the elderly, even the deeply depressed and the mentally ill, they call it assisted dying. It's murder by another name. And it's sanctioned by the government. And it stems from this basic idea of evolution. It's okay to check out of life because it's the natural way of things. If you can't hack it, if life sucks for you, go ahead, check out. Because in the big scheme of things, your life doesn't really matter because all you are is an amoeba on steroids. That's the way evolutionists think. They don't always bring it to the fore, but that's in the background. That's what people are taught in the public schools. How cold, how heartless. How hopeless. Is it any wonder then that suicide rates are on the rise in North America? Life is devalued by evolutionism to that of an ordinary animal. So that when many are asking those questions, who am I? What's the point of life? They don't have answers. But God has an answer. He goes out of His way to tell us right here in our text just how precious humans are. Verse 27, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. That makes you worth something, brothers and sisters. It makes you and every human worth something. It makes you invaluable. You're no animal. You're no monkey. You're no amoeba on steroids. You and every human are marked off as distinct beings on this earth, as the only creatures which image God. You and I are the only creatures which reflect God. We'll speak a bit more in a minute about what that means, but understand that men and women are the highest of all of God's created works. They are the crown of His creation, just as we sang from Psalm 8, God has put mankind over all of creation. 
men and women. I hasten to add, because our text says that very clearly, male and female are created in the image of God. Now, men and women have different roles to play on God's earth, under God's direction. We hope to speak more about that when we come to the creation of woman in due time. But let it be understood right now that one is not more valuable than the other. One is not somehow closer to God than the other. One is not inherently superior to the other. Men and women are equally precious to the Lord. He made both in the image of Himself. And when He did so, God made man into two sexes, male and female, biological sex and gender, male and female. I want to pause over this for a moment because there are people in our society who are busy, hard at it, turning this upside down and saying, even in the public schools, that there are many genders and it's up to you which gender you want to be. It's your choice. They are teaching that maleness and femaleness are just two options, just part of a whole range of genders. I think there are over a hundred of them now that arise out of our feelings, what we feel about what gender we are. Believe it or not, university students are forced to introduce themselves at the beginning of the first class by telling everybody what their preferred gender is and their preferred pronouns to go with that gender. So we've got a whole bunch of brand new pronouns, Z, Zem, Zer, Zers. People are referring to themselves even though they're a singular person as them or themselves. And that's just a smattering of the examples of pronouns. The idea is that your gender is not connected to your biological sex. Gender is just something you feel, says the world, and you can change it at will. And all of this, brothers and sisters, when we stand back and look at that, we might think, wow, what this is, I don't even know how to, how to get into that mindset, but I want you to be aware that it is much, much deeper than just labels for the people that are into this way of thinking. The world says that your identity is wrapped up in your feelings of gender, and your identity, even more, is wrapped up in your feelings of sexual orientation. This is a big, big thing for many in the world today. They, they use, when they speak of gender or sexual orientation, they use the language of identification. It's the who am I question stated as a, a fact. They might say something like, I identify as a cisgender male or cisgender female. Others might say, I identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual. I identify. They use the word. This is who I am. I'm gay. I'm a, I'm a bi. I'm a les. 
I'm gender fluid. Gender to the world is much more than the reality of your biology, and sexual orientation is a whole lot more than just a chosen lifestyle, a thing that you engage in. You know, most of us, I think, would be used to thinking of sex as an activity, but folks in our society who buy into this way of thinking, that activity, it becomes them. That's who they are. So you understand when you start dialoguing with your neighbors about these things and maybe come with question marks and perhaps some justified criticism, you understand they feel it as an attack on their person. It's not just a criticism of something they do, it's an attack on who they are. So we need to be wise in how we interact. We need to find a way to speak truth to our neighbors in a way which will get through to them and help them see the errors of their thinking. And we also need to be very clear-headed for ourselves and understand from our text and from all the Scripture that God created mankind, male and female. Those are the only two genders that exist. All the rest is made up by our current culture. I know that there's a very small percentage of people that are born without male or female genitalia. And there's a fewer among them that have physical characteristics of both sexes. These are the exceptions which demonstrate the rule. And for those folks, there is a lot of confusion and difficulty. They'll need help to work through all of that. But it's not, in a way, that strange. For in this fallen world, just think about what happens to people in in so many other respects. Many people are born with, with abnormalities, and sin has corrupted all of us to the core to one degree or another. But the norms of God's Word, they remain those good creation norms, and the vast majority of humans are either male or female as God created them. Gender is not fluid. Don't believe the lies of the world. A gender, and gender is not who you are, and sexual orientation is not who you are either. In fact, It's not even our job as humans to define our identity, is it? When you take a step back and think about that. You know, unbelievers, they they take it upon themselves to define just who they are and set the rules for how they live. But isn't that the height of arrogance and rebellion, a total snubbing of our, our Creator? We humans are creations of God. And creations don't get to define who they are. The Creator does. He is the potter, we are the clay, says the Bible elsewhere. So we need to listen to Him, and we need to follow His directives. And the Creator says very, very clearly in our text, your identity is this. I created you in my image. I have created you as my son, my daughter to reflect me in this world. 
Maleness and femaleness are part of being human, and heterosexual attraction is part of being human, but those things are not who you are. Who you are is this, says the Lord. You're my child. That's your identity. You're my child, and I want you to represent me in this world. And you know, that's true for every single human, whether Christian or unbeliever. After the fall into sin, after the flood, God makes this point clear to Noah. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For, here it comes, God made man in his own image. The image is still there even after the fall into sin, even after the flood. We humans have certainly ruined this image and are corrupt in our sin, but the Lord still recognizes the, the vestiges, the leftover remnants of His image in every human being. And isn't that a good starting point for our conversations, our evangelism conversations about the gospel with our neighbors, even in our, our way of thinking about our neighbors? How do we think about our neighbors? How do we regard unbelievers just generally? Even if they are hostile toward God and spout ungodly things, let's take care to remember that they too are made in the image of God. Even the worst offender made in the image of God. So we need to have respect. We need to have care. And then let's, let's look for ways to communicate that perspective to our neighbors, that truth. Lots of people are totally unaware of their standing before God. They, they don't know that they are made in the image of God. They might even think if they think about God, God doesn't care about them. God is so far removed from them. Oh, we can, we can come to them if that opening is there. Come with the good news. Look, God created you, man woman. God created you in His image. That's how much He cares for you. He, he set you apart from all, all the animals. And, and you know, when the rains fall outside to water the crops and the trees and everything else, and when the sun provides heat and light so food grows to provide, to, to make food for all of, of humanity, you know, that's your Creator at work for you. That's God at work for you and for me, and for everyone else, so that we can live as His image. God cares for you. Look at what He's doing in creation. Well, what does that mean then, that concept of being created in God's image? We understand it's a high honor. No, one, no other creature has it, but what is it exactly? Some have thought that it means, well, we must look like God physically, but that can't be because Scripture says elsewhere, God has no body, He is spirit. While others have thought it, it refers to man's rational ability, to his capacity to reason and to speak, because animals don't have those capacities, others link it to man's will or to the fact that man has a soul. And certainly those things are, are part of the picture, part of what makes up uh, humans and separates humans from animals. But our text reveals something else in verse 26. Right after God determines to make man in His own image, He gives him a task, verse 26, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea 
and over the birds of the air and over the heavens, birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let them have dominion. What's that? That means let them have authority over, rule over all creation. So God right away connects these two things. When He makes mankind in His own image, He makes man, male and female, rulers over creation. In other words, mankind is meant to represent to the world, represent God to the world as king over creation. You can think of it this way. We, we know, I think, well enough that God is the supreme ruler. He's the creator. He made all. He governs all. He will never not govern all. No one even compares to God. And so, God always was, is, and forever will be the king over all creation. But now, this, this supreme king, he takes mankind, male and female, that he's created, and he places man as steward over creation on his behalf, kind of like you have that with earthly kings sometimes. They might uh, make a point a person to, to be a steward over a certain part of his kingdom. Well, God makes us stewards over the planet called earth. We have this high calling as God's stewards to represent Him to the world. You could use the word vice-regent. Maybe you've heard of that word in connection with our governor general here in Canada. She represents the queen. The queen is in England, but we have a governor general in Canada who represents the queen and who officially has authority over Canadians. So, that's our, our great calling as humans made in the image of God. We are representing God on the earth. How are you doing with that task? Do people see in you the image of God when they interact with you? Is that what they see? Do people notice that you've got the same concern, the same care for God's creation as the king himself does? Do you treat other people with respect as fellow image bearers, believers and non-believers alike? You know, sometimes we treat our jobs as just another way to make money, make some cash, another way to pay the bills, and, and that's that's all how we, that's the only way we think about our jobs. But ask yourself, is that the way the Lord thinks about work? You and I, we're not on this planet to serve ourselves. We're not here, as the world teaches, we're not here to live our best life, get the most out of it before we kick the bucket. No. You and I live as the image of God. That's a tremendously high calling. You're, you're a king or you're a queen under God. We're here to look after the, His earth and, and to develop its potential and all of its intricacies and all fields of endeavor and to do that for His honor. So when you're about your daily work, brothers and sisters, are you thinking about that? Do you have the honor of your king in mind when you 
lay bricks, drive nails, draw up plans, make sales, manage your employees, care for your kids, teach in the schools. We are kings, we are queens who serve the great creator. Let's, let's act like that. It can't be about our pleasure, but about God's glory. And you know, the wonderful thing is, when we focus on the glory of our maker, our king, when we strive to be faithful stewards over his creation, we will have all kinds of pleasure and joy. Why? Because that's how God made us to act. And when we act in the way He wants us to act, He increases our joy. We have pleasure in that service. And as we represent God, we will at the same time reflect God to the world. For this, this image of God, it involves the task of ruling, but a bit more than that, it involves how we go about ruling. Later in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You have put on the new self, here it is, which is being renewed in the knowledge of its Creator. We are being renewed in the knowledge of our Creator. And being an, the image of God means living according to a certain code of conduct. You've got to put off the old self, put on the new self. Are we doing that? Image bearers in Colossians 3, for example, image bearers don't lie. We don't engage in deceit. We speak the truth. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 4. He calls us there too. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, when we're doing our daily jobs or functioning in our homes, wherever we might be, whatever situation, we are to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's got to characterize all of our actions and interactions. It means we... We do our tasks in obedience to God's law, in harmony with His will. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? How are we going to do that exactly? How are, are we sinful people going to reflect God to the world? Well, that, brothers and sisters, is where the Savior Jesus comes in. For He works this image in us through His Spirit. For you know and I know the reality is we've ruined the image of God by our sin, kind of like a, uh, like a mirror. If you think of a mirror, you could say that man was created by God like a mirror, like a, a spiritual mirror to reflect God's righteousness and holiness as man would rule over creation. But when we rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, it was like that mirror in us, it was like it just shattered into a million pieces. It, it may, there, there's still a mirror there, but it's just a mirror with, with a million cracks in it. It's not able to do its job. It, it can no longer, that mirror can no longer show God's 
goodness and sinlessness. At best, there's a faint bunch of glimmerings. But then came Jesus, sent by the Father to restore in us what we had destroyed. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as a sin offering, God condemned sin in the flesh. Do you hear the grace in those words? The Son of God, says the Apostle, was made in our likeness, our image. Man in the beginning was created in the perfect image of God, but afterward man had corrupted that image. The perfect Son had to be made in the image of sinful man, it says. The Son of God had to be made a sin offering for us. Think of the, the, the abundance of love here on God's side. He humiliated His sinless Son by, by sending Him to take on, to clothe Himself with, with weak and susceptible human nature. Though the Son of God had no sin or evil in Him at all, He didn't have any weakness in Him. He had to take on, and He willingly did, the weakness of human flesh so that in every way the Son of God experienced the consequences of Adam's sin in His flesh. He had a body that could feel pain. He had a body that could get sick. He had a body that could tire. He could be exhausted. He could be misunderstood. He could suffer. He could be beaten. He could be insulted. He could even die. The Son of God could die in that human flesh. God the Son was made in our image, taking upon Himself our curse, even going into death, so that you and I might be given new life and be recreated in the image of God. That is the remarkable gospel of exchange. And Jesus, Jesus has done more. He's sent forth His Spirit to work in us, to recreate in us that which we lost, the image of God. We are being restored, says the Apostle Paul, to righteousness and holiness Paul sums it up in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see that, 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 that state of being children of God is restored to us. The Holy Spirit takes us by the hand and, and He lets us, He even makes us call God. Though God we once rejected in the garden, we may now call Him Father, all because of Jesus. And as the Spirit of Jesus works in us, we begin to reflect, you see, the true image of God. That's why Paul can give commands in Colossians and Ephesians and other letters, put off the old self, put on the new self. We can do that because the Spirit is in us. We can make progress. Are you praying for that, beloved? There's the old broken image, corrupt, filled with selfishness and sin. We know that person, right? 
And then there's the new image being worked in us, an image of God in which we are filled with love and obedience. Do we know that image? Are we striving to show that to the world? When you walk the halls at school or hang out with your buddies and head to the pizza shop at lunch, when you conduct your business, when you shop at the mall or get your hair done, who do people see? Which of those two images do they meet? When you're at the basketball court or driving around in your car or just sitting somewhere in public, who are you? Who are you? Just another human who doesn't know God, doesn't understand God, doesn't have faith in God. Is that who you are? Or are you a heavenly son or daughter of your Father? And you know it. As a human, you are created in God's image. And as a covenant child, you have the promise to be recreated in God's image by the power of Jesus' Spirit. Are you grabbing hold of that promise and praying to God to make that promise fulfilled in your life? And then do you keep in step with the Spirit? The world wonders what life is all about. But God tells us what it's all about. Life, it's about being my image in this world. That's what life is. There's no need for an identity crisis, beloved. God created you in His likeness as His son or daughter, and God is recreating you now in Jesus in His likeness. Who are you? Huh. You're His child. That's who you are. Now go and live it. Amen.